before we dig into it. Um, a number of you might be familiar with Miss Havisham. She's one of Dickens' most famous characters from Great Expectations. She was famously left at the altar in her youth on what should have been her wedding day. And we meet her in Great Expectations as a cool, wealthy, middle-aged spinster who still, to this day, wears her wedding dress and sits in a mansion with the uneaten wedding breakfast and cake laid out before her and all the clocks set at 20 minutes to nine. A few years ago, the BBC made a show called Dickensian. It was kind of a mashup, basically, of Dickens' best characters and storylines. And I absolutely loved it. Um, one of the big storylines uh, was that of Miss Havisham's romance, which you don't see in the, in the novel Great Expectations. So we're introduced to this beautiful, charming young woman at the start of the series. And then we, we watch in horror as she meets this fickle, charming accomplice and against her own wiser instincts and the pleas of her cousin, she falls in love with him. And then the scene at the end, uh, on her wedding morning, when she learns that he's betrayed her, is awful to watch. How could she have been so blind? He cried out as an audience. How could she have been so blind? And that's the same question we face in our passage this evening for Israel. Terrible judgment lies in store for them, just around the corner. How could they have been so blind? Not to someone else's wickedness, but to their own. As we study these verses this evening, hopefully we'll find some answers to that question. Uh, but first, let's just stand back for a couple of minutes and see where we are tonight in the book of Amos. And so if you flip back to chapter 1, verse 1, uh, you'll see that Amos uh, was written in the period when the kingdom had been split into two. <coughs> so the glory days of David and Solomon were long gone, and the kingdom had been divided. Uh, with Israel in the north, with uh, Jeroboam II, son of Jehoash, as the king, and then Judah in the south, uh, with Uzziah as the king. And then Amos um, went to the northern kingdom of Israel. And now they're actually doing quite well, politically and economically at this time. And there isn't time to go there now, but in 2 Kings chapter 14, it talks about Jeroboam the second's reign. And they'd retaken most, if not all, of the land that had been lost uh, when the kingdom was torn apart after Solomon. Um, and the flip side of the coin, this was a particularly low point in the Assyrian kingdom's fortune who were Israel's biggest enemies. But things weren't going so well for Israel spiritually, although, as we'll see later, this was news to them. And Amos, chapter 1, verse 1, tells us, um, was a shepherd or a farmer uh, from Tekoa, which was actually in the southern kingdom in Judah, it's a little bit south of Bethlehem. And he was given a vision, um, a vision of judgment from God for the northern kingdom, and was sent to the north to tell them. Probably making him about as popular as someone from Cambridge coming over to show us the Tandy University Guide and to tell us that Oxford's uh, top again. No, sorry, Oxford's second again. Uh, in terms of dates, um, this is probably around 760 BC, um, which actually makes it the earliest prophetic book that we have. Um, Amos was a contemporary of Hosea and a little bit before Isaiah and Micah's time. Um, by way of structure, um, chapter 1 starts with judgment on the surrounding nations. And then there was the surprise um, in chapter 2 of judgment for Judah too, and then the even bigger surprise in chapter 2 of judgment for Israel, surely not. And then from chapter 3 uh, to um, chapter 5, uh, we get three oracles or speeches explaining God's coming judgment on Israel and the reasons for it. Uh, so there's one that starts in chapter 3 verse 1, hear this word, 
The second one starts in chapter 4, verse 1. Hear this word. And the third one starts in chapter 5, verse 1. Hear this word. And that takes us up to where we are tonight. Two words, all immense. Uh, one starting in chapter 5, verse 18, repeated in the chapter. And then the second one starting at chapter 1, of verse 6, repeated in the chapter. Uh, and the two words uh, take quite similar forms. Uh, he starts with, woe to you who, um, and then details his real sin. Um, each has a I hate statement from God in verse 21 of chapter 5, and then in verse 8 of chapter 6. Um, and each finishes with an announcement of God's judgment. The second is quite a bit longer, um, and we get more statements through it that God is going to judge Israel. Uh, as well as at the end, so we get it in verse 3 of chapter 6, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, as well as at the end of verse 14. And also in chapter 6, the second row, we get this illustration in verses 9 to 10, and we can hardly fail to spot how awful that judgment is going to be. I think it's probably fair to say that this is one of the bleakest sections in Amos, certainly so far. And these verses are full of these poetic contrasts, both beautiful and horrifying, as we see time and again that the people of Israel's verdict on themselves is very different from God's verdict on them, and they're blind to it. And Amos has two particular groups of people in mind in these two minutes. Let's dig in and see them. First, woe to the enthusiastic to 5, 18 to 27. Verse 18 begins with this almost glorious picture of piety. Look down with me. You long for the day of the Lord. God's people longing for the day of the Lord. You can imagine them down on their knees, praying, anticipating, crying out for the day when God will once and for all save his people. But verse 18 continues. Why do you long for the day of the Lord? A redundant question, should we? That day will be darkness, not light. That day will not be good news for you, Israel, says God. It will be like fleeing a lion, only to meet a bear. Like making it into a house and collapsing into the wall, only to be bitten by a snake sitting on the wall. You think you will escape danger on that day, says God, but you will find yourself in a far greater danger than what you thought you were escaping. It will not be light that day, says God, for you. It will be darkness, verse 20. Pitch black, not a single ray of light. You've got it so, so wrong, says God. Imagine those first listeners from Israel gasping in horror as they heard him take their hope and rub it in the dirt. And then verse 21, I hate, says God. I despise strong words. Well, this will explain it. They must have thought there must be some terrible, terrible sin Amos is about to expose that they'd somehow not noticed. But verse 21 I hate, I despise your religious festivals. I hate your church services, says God. You bring me offering after offering after offering after offering. God says in verse 22. But I will not accept them. Stop the music. Get the instruments out of here. Turn off the microphones 
I will not listen to your songs. God says, verse 23. What does God hate? He hates their worship. Verse 24. But let justice roll on like a river. Righteousness like a never fading stream. I will not accept your worship, says God. But I will accept justice. If you fought for justice, for righteousness, then worship. That I will accept. If you offer that, I will listen. Israel's mistake. <clears throat> but their worship may be enthusiastic. But it's empty. They think that sacrifice is not for alone and enough to please God. But, we see in verse 26, their hearts are elsewhere. They've offered their bulls to God, as Leviticus commanded them. But they've offered their hearts to the gods of the stars, the planets, and the nations around them. And the verb have lifted up, in their Hebrew original, suggests an incomplete action. They're still doing this, still giving their bulls to God hearts to idols. And one of the many consequences of this is that justice, injustice is rampant. The poor suffer, the vulnerable are abused, and the innocent are oppressed, because the worship of the Israelites is no more than the lip service. Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. And God will punish them. Verse 27. Therefore I will send you into exile, says the Lord Almighty. They will be kicked out of their precious land. Their worship may be enthusiastic, but it is empty. They worship God with their hands, their mouths, their wallets, but not with their hearts. Woe to the enthusiastically empty, says the Lord. The second Amos has in mind are the self-congratulatory scorpions in chapter 6. Amos turns his attention now to the leaders, the complacent in verse 1, those who feel secure, the notable men, <coughs> the foremost nation, those to whom the people of Israel come, the glorious leaders sat up on high on their mighty pedestals. Go out, says Amos, to these glorious leaders, Go out to Canaan, verse 2, to Hamath, go to Gath. Are they any better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? Yes? No. Do Israel's leaders really think that they are that much stronger, that much better, that much more secure than any of these other nations' cities? Do they not see how quickly cities, nations, empires rise and fall? Do they not realise how fragile their kingdom is? Firstly, they are simply putting off the day of disaster. It's all they do. The reign of terror will come. And where does this pride, this self-congratulation, lead them? In verses 4 to 6, it leads them to self-indulgence. They lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on couches, in verse 4. They dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. They strum away on their harps like David. Drinking wine by the ball and using the finest lotions, verse 7. So imagine the scene the best, the wealthiest, the most powerful Israel had to offer, gathered in lavishly decorated banquet halls to eat the finest food money could buy, 
down the line by the bottle, with time enough to spare to mess around making up tunes on their hearts, the decadence, the extravagance, the luxury. Look at the little de uh, details Amos puts in just to put the picture into the face of his hearers, their ivory adorned couches, they drink bowlfuls of wine, the finest of lotions, no expenses spared. They lie, they lounge, they dine, they strum away, they improvise, they drink, they use, they do not grieve, verse 6. They do not care about the spiritual state of their nation. They're too busy rolling around, drunk. And God will punish them, verse 7. As long and as detailed as the list describing their feasting was, as abrupt as God's conclusion, your feasting and lounging will end. And these, the best, the first, the finest of Israel's people, will be the best, the first, the finest, at going into exile. For God hates, verse 8, their pride and their fortresses. They've replaced God, who should be their fortress. See Psalm 18, 31, 46, 59, and many more, with a fortress made of stone. But it will fall, along with everything in it and around it. For God hates their pride, and he hates its physical manifestation, their fortress. And just in case they weren't sure what this would look like, God's judgment, Amos gives an awful illustration in verses 9 to 10 of the totality of destruction. If ten people were left in the house, they would end up dead. If someone who came to bury the dead found someone hiding there, he would urge them not to call on the name of the Lord, for it would be too late. God would smash their houses and their beautiful buildings. Verse 11. And we'll find a new one. Samos gives us in these last few verses what Israel has done is as absurd as it is awful. Now imagine in verse 12 a group of stallions trying to gallop along a rocky cliff or a herd of oxen up to their chests in water, trying to plough the seabed. Amos' audience here, perhaps breathing a sigh of relief, maybe even a chuckle. Until verse 13. For that's how absurd Israel rejoicing in the conquest of nothing is, as it says in the footnote. Israel praising their strength for winning a straight city is no less foolish. And again, the consequence of all this pride and self-congratulation? Injustice. Injustice everywhere. The lonely, the disabled, the desolate, the destitute are forgotten. Justice has been tainted so that it is now poison, verse 12. The fruit of righteousness has soured into bitterness. Not only are they self-congratulatory, but they are scorners. Scorners of any other power and strength. Scorners of the weak within their own society. And God will punish them. Verse 14. The conquerors will be conquered. God will send a nation who will destroy them from the very northernmost point of Israel, Nebo Hamath, to the southernmost tip of the valley of Arabah. Not a scrap of land will remain theirs. The land that they were so proud to have conquered themselves. Woe to the self-congratulatory scorners, says Amos. 
So what do we do with this? Tell ourselves that we're not 8th century Northern Kingdom and quickly close our Bibles in relief? Yes. Because if we're Christians, if we trust in Jesus, then we need not fear his judgment. We're going to sing it later in Christ alone. No guilt in life, no fear of death. Jesus has taken the punishment for us. But we all know and love people who are not just in Jesus. So we also need to keep the Bibles open and tremble as we read these words. Now, of course, there are many differences between us and the group of people that Amos was addressing. We're not bound by the laws, rewards, and curses of the Deuteronomy law in the way that they were. There's no earthly promised land for believers today. Military invasion isn't something we need to fear in the way that they did. But there are similarities, too, between us and them. God's judgment is still coming. A much greater judgment. A judgment for which the exile that Amos was prophesying about here was only a tiny, almost insignificant picture of. And we know that those who are not trust in Jesus will be judged guilty in that judgment. So these words should be a great motivation to our prayer, our evangelism, and our support of Christian work in the city and around the world. So I think there's more in here for us as believers than solely the encouragement to pray and speak and work for the conversion of us. I think we're to look into our own hearts too and examine as we read these words. Paul warns the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. These things happen to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the culmination of the ages has come. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful you do not fall. Now you can read the whole passage later to see that in its context in 1 Corinthians 10. We may read of idols to stars and planets, of banqueting on ivory-adorned couches, and of scoffing over conquest of cities we've never heard of, and think it all sounds rather remote. But, but the sins underlying that are close to us, closer to our hearts than we might realise. So be careful. Paul warns us, be careful that we do not fall. So let's just come back and look at each of these in turn. So number one, woe to the enthusiastic end. Woe to those, Amos said in chapter 5, who offer their bulls to God, but their hearts to idols. Woe to those who worship God with their hands, their mouths and their wallets, but not with their hearts. Now we may not be bound by the Old Testament rules about offerings and sacrifices, but I think we too can slip into following Christian rituals while our hearts are elsewhere. The Pharisees, as we've seen in our Marxism in the morning, are an excellent example of this. So a, a ritual is simply anything that provides a rule or a pattern for how we do Christian life in church. And rituals are good. There's a reason God gave his people so many rituals and rules about how to worship him. These rituals were supposed to lead them to him, to a relationship with God, their only God. And it's the same for us. Rituals and routines are good as long as they lead us to a relationship with God. Where they fall down is where they become the end of themselves, rather than the means to the end. And we follow rituals everywhere, both corporately and personally. Probably the vast majority of them are cultural, we don't even realise that they're rituals. Corporately, the way we structure our services, the Bible translation we use, our method and style of preaching, the types of songs we sing, the books we read and recommend to each other, the way we talk about and do certain things at church. Personally, how, when, in what way we read the Bible and pray, and quiet times, the ways in which we serve, 
the ways in which we give our money. Our Mitchells are good, as long as they don't become hands in themselves. As long as they don't become things that we offer to God instead of offering our hearts. That would be a bit like a family going out uh, for one pound's birthdays to a nice restaurant for a meal. But the children spend the whole meal and look at the menu, declaring all the things they want to be bought, and playing on their phones and squabbling. A meal out is a great way to celebrate a pound's birthday. But there's not much point if the children are there in person, but their hearts are elsewhere. It's just a ritual with no relationship. I've been reflecting this week on how ritualistic my prayer life can be. How empty that communion sometimes is. I know where I must pray every day, before I read the Bible, before I can talk. I know how I must pray, people's prayer, the words and epistles, people's souls and spiritual needs, as well as their felt needs. I know I must pray a lot, so I try and pray. Don't pray throughout the day, a clock watch, what times I start praying, what times I finish. Yes, pray for however many minutes. But where's my heart? Am I praying because I love God? privilege of being able to talk to my Heavenly Father, because I want to get to know Him better, because I want His will to be done, and I want to be aligned with His, because I long for Him to work in and through my prayers, my heart, my deeds. Sometimes is the honest answer. Sometimes. But sometimes I'm just praying so I can tick it off the list of things I know I should do. Woe to those who offer their thoughts to God. But their hearts elsewhere. Let's take a moment now to reflect on areas where you're tempted to offer empty rituals to God, but your heart is elsewhere. Second, woe to the self-congratulatory scorners in chapter 6. Woe to the glorious leaders who are so proud of their achievements, who show so much interest in themselves, and so little concern for those suffering around them. Well, again, we may not have conquered nations lying at our feet, but it's all too easy for us too to look at blessings God has given us, battles he's won for us, gifts he's fanned to flame in us, and slip into thinking that we deserve them, that there are achievements, and from there, it's a slippery slope into self-satisfaction, which leads to self-indulgence, which turns into school for anyone we might think are wiser or less good than us. I remember a boy I used to teach in Cowboy, a clever boy, and he'd tell me that he was the best at maths, the very best in our class, and his friend was the second best, and everyone else, well... And I tried to remonstrate with him. Maybe he wasn't the cleverest. Maybe others were cleverer than he'd realised. Maybe others who were cleverer than him come along later, he'd have none of it. And lo and behold, the following year, a really, really clever boy joined the class. And the poor people didn't know what to do with themselves. He couldn't have it. Words of the glorious leaders were so proud of their achievements. And for me, I think it's that little feeling of self-satisfaction, of pride, that rises up so often after I've served God. I nailed it with that kid's It was really good of me to offer to help out caring said just the right thing to that person I was talking to them earlier. It was so good of me to show my face at the event and turn up. It was really good to invite those people around after church. It's pride. 
self-congratulation. It's wrong and it leads nowhere good. It leads to self-satisfaction, which leads to self-indulgence, which turns into school, or anyone we might think of for less than goodness. And suddenly it's hardly about God at all. They've sort of me. Take a moment again to think about how pride and self-congratulation can creep into your relationship. But as we draw to the end, let's think back to Jesus. And the huge relief for this as we read these words of warning to know that Jesus has already paid the price for our every single sympathy, past, present, and future. So many places we could go to. Let me read a few verses from 1 Peter chapter 2. He committed no sin, no deceit was found in his when they held their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Let's pray. Father, thank you. We do not need to fear your judgment. Thank you that as we read these awful, awful words in Amos, we can cling to Jesus and know that he has already paid the price for our sin. We've been washed clean by his blood. But Father, as we read these words, we pray that they will spare us to evangelism. And we pray that they will cause us to examine our own hearts and to see where we're tempted to sin in these ways. And we pray that our thoughts, our words, our actions will be only to you.